join with me in prayer. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that we can come together under your authority and recognize that each and every one of us have a calling which is uniquely called by you to go forth into this world to shine your salt and light. And we pray that on this Faith and Work Sunday, we would see how we can do that looking at the ancient people Israel and your word to them, Lord, through the prophet Jeremiah. And so, Lord, I ask that you would illumine our minds, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts warm to the reality of your grace, which is only a work that you can do in us. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. We started this Faith and Work Sunday a few years back just to remind ourselves as Anglican Christians, the Reformation did give us this whole idea of the priesthood of all believers. And that what you do in your vocation is just as important. What I do is not superior in God's eyes. And so, students, you have a job. Adults, you have a job. And retirees, you have a job right where you are to be salt and light. And so how can we do that? How can we flourish in the school, the workplace, the retirement situation that I find myself in? Well, today's the context of that calling. Looking at the prophet Jeremiah, I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. Or in the back of the bulletin, if you're a guest with us, we encourage you to turn there as well. And what Jeremiah teaches us, or rather the Lord through Jeremiah teaches them and us the wrong ways to relate to the area in which we live, the right ways to relate to the area in which we live, and how in the world we can have the power to live the life that God's called us to live in this area. First, the wrong ways to relate to the area. This is a letter to the exiles. The Jewish people in 586 were overrun by Babylon. Many were killed. The temple was destroyed. And people were taken, especially the young people, were taken back to Babylon. And so the Babylonians could decide to take their exiles and treat them one of three ways. They had learned throughout times to treat them a certain way. It's still wrong, but it's what they did. They could have treated them by just trying to eliminate all of them, drive them out of Jerusalem and Israel, just kill as many as he can, and so Israel scattered. What they learned over time when they did that was those people came back very angry, and they formed military divisions, and they got attacked again. They could have also just captured them and oppressed them and enslaved them. And what they discovered when you enslave people brutally and whip them and beat them and make them do what they naturally don't want to do, a thing called insurrections tends to happen. And so they didn't do that either. What they did do is treat them as Babylonians and teach them to be Babylonians. Their approach was you can live among us and you can have all the best jobs as long as you become like us. We see this in the book of Daniel. 
Daniel, change your name, is Belteshazzar, which in Babylonian means my God is Bel, okay? So you change their names, you give them a Babylonian education, you make them eat the Babylonian diet, and then they'll become completely Babylonian. You see, you assimilate the people intellectually, socially, and spiritually so that over time and over generations, they're no longer Jewish or whatever conquered nation they were. They're now fully Babylonian because the people will listen and say, hey, if I want to get ahead socially, economically, thrive and flourish, I need to become Babylonian. And God actually addresses this in verse 6 when he says, multiply there and do not decrease. In other words, multiply there and don't become Babylonian. (laughs) The Babylonians wanted them to decrease. And if they're going to assimilate, they would decrease. Now there's a second way in this text that we see as a wrong way to relate to the world. There's assimilation. But there's another aspect that's going on here called tribalism. We see this in verse 8. When the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Well, what were these prophets saying? Well, if you go back to chapter 28, you'll see what they were saying. A false prophet, Hananiah, said to them in verse 11 of chapter 28, Thus says the Lord, Even so, I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. Well, in other words, Hananiah was predicting an invasion or an earthquake or an act of God. And God was going to destroy Babylon. Then all the Jews would be able to go back to Jerusalem. And so what they were saying to the people is, stay out here by the Kabar Canal. We know the Israelites lived a large community there from the book of Ezekiel. Because he had a vision while they lived there, which is outside of Babylon. It's, It's separated from the city. Don't move in. And only use them so as far as it advances you economically. Exploit the area. Disdain the area. And both are wrong ways to relate to the city of Cleveland and to the area in which we live. God desires his people to live a different way. Well, how does he desire us to live? What's God's way? Instead, he tells the exiles something that would have been absolutely, utterly astounding. Look at verse 5. Build houses. Live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. Literally, the Babylonians' hands were dripping with Jewish blood. And God gives them this message The city's filled with idols, it's filled with false gods, 
And God has the audacity to say, seek their welfare, for in it you will have welfare. That's the Hebrew word shalom. Seek the shalom of the city. Pray for the Lord for it, for if it prospers, you prosper. It must have been utterly astounding for God to say, I want you, my children, to be among the city and the region to engage in it enough so that your little tribe increases. I want you to seek the prosperity and peace for the whole city of Babylon. I want you to pray for it. I want you to root for the Babylonian Browns. I want you to be for it and not against it. Okay? It's astounding. But it really isn't when you see the way the Lord deals with his people in metropolitan areas all throughout the Bible. St. Augustine wrote a great book called The City of God, and when Augustine read the Bible, he noticed this pattern throughout the scriptures that there is the city of God and the city of man. All throughout the scriptures, especially in the Psalms and in the city, uh, in, in, in the book of Isaiah, for example, chapter 26 in Isaiah. It's the lofty city, the earthly city. <laughs> it's a city full of pride where people go to make a name for themselves. They go to that city where I can be somebody and I can be successful. And it's a place of exhaustion and it's a place of oppression. It's a place not only of exhaustion, but oppression where you have to climb the corporate ladder at other people's expense in order to get ahead. That's the earthly city, the city of man that Augustine writes about. But in contrast, the Bible keeps talking about the city of God, the heavenly city. The city of God does not work on the principle of pride, but rather works on the principle of grace. And because of that, it's not a place of exhaustion, it's a place of joy. It's not a place of oppression, it's a place of justice. Because the people in the city of God don't feel the need to impress people. They just are blessings wherever they are and wherever they're found. To put it another way, the city of man works on this principle, your life for mine. But in the city of God, it's my life for yours. And all throughout the Bible, you have these two cities... And the city of God is called Jerusalem. And the city of man is called Babylon. And it's a clear division. And up until Jeremiah's time, you read the Bible, you get the impression that the people of God are literally living in Babylon. And they're, they're living here and they're hoping that God will take them back to the city of God. And what does he tell these people? Move into it. Seek its welfare. For in its welfare, you will have welfare. You're thinking, I thought God was going to destroy this earthly city one day. What's going on? Jesus explains it in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. He says, you are a city on a hill. Okay, city of God, people. You are a city on a hill. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You know what those good deeds mean, right? 
it's not just good Christian living. It's there were people of the city of God who, because we are in Christ, were able to be a blessing. We form an alternate city within the city of man. Christians are to be an alternate city in which they take sex, money, and power, and instead of using it to exploit other people, they use it in life-giving ways. And Jesus says, here what you're supposed to be doing. The way you bear witness in the earthly city to God's heavenly city is you go in and you don't work to the city for your sake. You work to the city for their sake. Not for your tribe's sake, but for their sake. And St. Augustine says, the minute you're born again, you have dual citizenship. You have dual passports. City of God... City of man. That's who you are in Christ. And here are the marks of the citizen of God. Because you move into the city, you don't assimilate, you don't tribalize. You move in and be a blessing and seek its welfare and peace and joy. My life for yours. So when Jeremiah says, seek the shalom of the city... Shalom doesn't just, we think it means secession of hostility. Well, that's one aspect of shalom, but it means so much more. It means total flourishing in every human dimension. Socially, economically, physically, spiritually, shalom. If you believe that and you're in Christ and a child of God, this has to be our attitude in my classroom, in my workplace, you retirees, in the doctor's office you go to for the hundredth time, I don't know, wherever you go in your retirement, whatever you're doing with yourself, God doesn't stop using his people no matter where they are in life. And if you believe that, we're called to do that. That's why at Christ Church, we're involved with CRS, seeking the peace of our neighbors, and they're there, who are really down on their circumstances. We look for the, we work for the peace of Cleveland, Avon Lake, Bay, Avon, because we're a different people. We're chosen by God. We're adopted into his family. And it's out of that we serve, and it's radical in a world who doesn't understand it. And you might think to yourself, I don't know many churches like that. I don't know many people who live like that. But you know, we've got great models in church history. The early church, for example, Rodney Stark wrote a great book, and I encourage you to read it, called The Rise of Christianity. He documents why in the world did the early church grow so radically in the first 300 years of its existence. It came down to several points, really. It came down to, one, how they served their neighbors. They got, as a whole, in the Roman Empire, they were a small minority, that they're called to be a blessing. So, for example, in that culture, in Roman pagan culture, you needed sons, not daughters. And oftentimes, female newborns were thrown out on the trash heap outside the town because I didn't get the son I wanted. Christians 
would form squads and they would stay watch around the trash heap. And if someone brought a little baby girl out, they would scoop them up, take them into their home, and take care of them as their own. They also went into plague-ridden areas, areas where nobody else would go. They would go there and they would feed. They would wipe their brow. They would minister to them in a fascinating way. They loved and served the community. And this Rodney Stark, who's a historian sociologist, said this is a simple historical fact. There are many ethnic groups and religious philosophies competing in the Roman Empire, more than there are today. It was a very fragmented society but became popular because as they took care of the sick, took care of the babies, strove to be a blessing to their neighbors, they gave sick people food and water. They were five times more likely to live through the plagues that they endured. And so the person got up from their sickness and they looked at the Christians and they would say, why did you do that? What are you here for? Why are you doing this? Well, the assimilationists couldn't answer that because they never showed up. The tribalists didn't show up because they didn't want to die. But the Christians say, we're not here for anything. We're here because God loves us and God loves you and we're called to be a blessing and love you too. We're not afraid of death. We don't need to be rich. We don't need to get ahead. We don't need to live for ourselves. It's my life for yours. We're operating on that principle. And as a result, the Christian gospel captured the imagination of the early Roman Empire. And by AD 300, it was the predominant faith. <laughs> but whatever captures the imagination of a metropolitan area tends to capture the country, does it not? So we pray for Cleveland. We pray for all our metropolitan areas. And the marks of the citizens of the city of God is that they're the very best citizens right where they are. So how can we get the power to do that? Is it just another do this? No. I'll tell you how that can be. Because centuries later, as we heard in the gospel lesson, Jesus Christ rode into the city of God. And what happened to him? He rode into the city of God and he was executed and thrown outside of the city, which was symbolic of being judged, which was symbolic of the banishment and the exile that sin causes that person. But it wasn't just a symbol to Jesus, it was a reality. Hebrews 13, 12, and 14. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Jesus suffered outside the gate. On the cross, Jesus was forsaken and cosmically thrown out, and God the Father forsook him. He experienced hell, as it were, on the cross for you and me. He was thrown out of the city so that you and I could be brought into the city of God. He got the exile 
so we could be brought in. He lost the city so that we could become citizens of the city that is to come, and that makes us salt and light in the city that is right now. And if you know that and you believe that, nothing can inhibit you from being a blessing wherever you are, in the office, in the classroom, no matter where you're found. Because you're not living for the world's applause, we're living for our Heavenly Father's applause. That's where the acclaim is. That's the only smile. Because when I leave this planet, I get Him in His presence forever. Because who cares what the city thinks? <laughs> the, city, the city of man, what does it matter when I got my Heavenly Father? whose applause I have simply because I've trusted in him. That's our identity. It's not that we're good little Christians and we read our Bible and we go to church and we go home and it doesn't impact us. Oh, it changes everything. I'm loved not because I'm moral and open-minded. I'm loved because of his love for me upon the cross. And because of that, I can have the power and make this the basis of my entire life. Every area of my life is impacted, not for assimilation, not for tribalism, but to go into the area in which God has called me to. Every address that we live in is ordained by God. Every workplace is ordained by God. And it empowers me to go there and serve and love the people that I probably deeply differ with. You know, in today's culture, the prevailing view still is to say, get rid of the idea that there's one true religion. Get rid of the idea that anybody has the truth. You just must accept the idea that truth is relative to the individual. And if you believe that, then I'll accept you, the world says, right? If you don't believe that, you're a bigot. You're intolerant. I'll accept you as long as you adopt my worldview. Well, I would point out to people who think that way, that's really cultural imperialism. It's assimilation in a different way. Jesus Christ gives Christians a resource for loving people who do not believe what we believe. Because Jesus died for me when I didn't believe what he believed, and Jesus died when I wasn't living for him, I was very offensive before I came to Christ. So Christianity finally gives us a resource to move out into this pluralistic culture in which we live and love people who are utterly different than us, and that's the number one call here at Christ Church, my friends, and it's called evangelism. And that's just who we are. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was telling me I was a sinner and radically loved me. And Jesus lost that city so I can have his city forever. So that I can be salt and light wherever I'm found. And so are you. So let's apply this. Number one. First, don't disdain the city of Cleveland. God's called you here. Let's live for him and join him in the work where he is doing. And he is working, if we will have eyes to see it. So let's pray to God and beg him to help us not miss it wherever we are. And if you're visiting from out of town, the same is where you live. 
wonderful story about that. Henry Blackaby took a church, a Baptist church in Saskatoon, Canada back in the 80s. This group of five believers called him, and God just broke his heart. I, if you had been five people, I said, sorry, you can't pay me. You know, this man took the calling. Well, it grew to 45, and so things were going pretty well in Saskatoon, Canada, where a church, a small fellowship of people in Winnipeg, that's Manitoba, <laughs> called him and said, hey, we're praying about considering planting a church here. Would you join us in prayer and consider supporting us? And he's like, well, I, we'll, we'll ask the Lord. Maybe the Lord wants us to do that. He brought that to the board and to the assembly there. There's 45 people. They started to pray. Lord, are you calling us to assist this small church? Because there wasn't a Baptist church in the 80s in Winnipeg. After three weeks, they decided the Lord had called them to assist them. So they started to assist them financially. Henry went up there once a month to preach. He equipped the lay elders there to, to start to preach. Next thing you know, they're 45, 50, 100. They're reaching out to the University of Winnipeg, and they're growing so much to the point, and so is the church in Saskatoon. They're just joining the Lord at the work <laughs> so much to the point that when Richard's Henry's son, Richard, graduates from seminary. They hired Richard to be the pastor. And today, though, both those churches are average Sunday attendance of 300. Faithful and Friendship Baptist Church in Winnipeg has planted nine other churches. And in Saskatoon, the Baptist Church there is still friends with St. Timothy's Anglican, which is a faithful Anglican church in the Church of Canada. My friends... Let's join the Lord at the work that he's doing. We don't have to drum up anything. We don't need a silver bullet ministry. Let's just pray that the Lord would show us, and he will be faithful. Second application is don't do it by yourself. You need to be part of a community, a little church. We need one another. We're called the body of Christ. When you try to live the Christian life by yourself, it's like taking the head off and carrying Jesus in a bucket as you walk around trying to live the Christian life by yourself. It's absurd. My friends, Jesus died for the church. So all those little church opportunities, there's something for everybody. Please consider joining us in one of those opportunities and use the gifts that God has given you. And the gospel gives you the ability and the resources to love people who are different than you. Not by taking power, but by coming and losing power and serving. Because how did God come to you? Not with a sword in his hand, but with nails through his hands. And to bear our judgment. Like in the words of Isaac Watts' great hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross on Which the Prince of Glory Died, My Riches Gain, I Count But Loss, and Pour Contempt on All My Pride. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the good news of Jesus. We thank you for helping us today to see that it changes the way everything operates in our lives. And we ask that you would show us how to be a community of people who are dual citizens.
citizens of the city of God and citizens of the city of man. And that makes us the very, 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 very best citizens of the citizens of the West Shore. Let us witness and show how the earthly city and the nature of the gospel by being an alternate city right here in the middle of our lives. And so, Lord, we pray you would help us to love and seek and pray for the peace of Cleveland and the entire West Shore region. And we ask that you would change us with the gospel in all these ways because we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Amen.